Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. You're listening to Unexplained, Season 6, Episode 5, The Boy Who, Part 2. George Friedrich Daumer watched with amazement as Caspar poured at the hand mirror and marvelled at the face of the strange boy inside it, peering back at him. Then, just as he had done three or four times already, Caspar quickly glanced behind the mirror, only to be disappointed once again to find the boy had vanished. That July afternoon, Professor Dalmer had gathered at Mayor Jakob Binder's house to meet with the mayor and Anselm Ritter von Feuerbach, a famed humanitarian and president of the recently established Court of Appeal in the nearby town of Ansbach, who had ultimate responsibility for any decisions involving Caspar. Encouraged by the demonstrable warmth and interest that Dalmer had already shown Caspar, not to mention his credentials as a celebrated teacher, it was quickly decided that he should take the boy for the time being. On July 18, 1828, just over seven weeks after his mysterious arrival in Nuremberg, Caspar was given a room in Dalmer's home on the edge of the city, where he lived with Dalmer and his sister and mother, and was invited to treat the house as his own. Since Professor Dalmer would be working most of the time, Gottlieb Freiherr von Tucher, the brother-in-law of famed philosopher George Hegel, was installed as Caspar's guardian. Together, they devised a daily course of lessons to help Caspar's development, focusing mainly on speaking, reading and writing. For the rest of the time, Caspar was encouraged to keep up his drawing and to exercise as much as possible. 
Having seen the progress that Casper had made in the short time he'd known him, Dalmer was convinced that his lack of intellectual faculties was not something inherent in his biology, but simply down to the environment in which he had been raised. This became all the more evident as Casper's speaking and writing skills continued to markedly improve in the weeks and months following his arrival at Dalmer's home. But there were other things about Casper that Dalmer hadn't expected to discover, such as his extraordinary ability to read in the dark or pick his way around the house, even in the most pitch-black conditions. Or perhaps more strangely, his heightened sense of smell, or the way in which he seemed superhumanly attuned to someone's presence. Once, as he approached the cemetery of a nearby church, went out for a stroll one day, Casper was suddenly overtaken by cold sweats and began to shake wildly. It was the sickly smell in the air, he said, as he tried not to vomit. Dalma, who hadn't smelt anything unusual, then realised he was talking about the corpses in the graveyard. Clearly, as Dalma surmised, having been denied the use of his eyes for so long, his other senses had intensified accordingly. And then, there was his strange connection to metal. Once, when Casper was shown a magnet, he grabbed at his chest suddenly, complaining that he could feel the magnet dragging at him, as if it were sucking something out of his body. Another time, Casper was said to have correctly identified a gold coin without looking at it. Intrigued by this bizarre ability, Dalmer devised an experiment in which he asked Casper to identify three different types of metal hidden under a sheet of paper. After placing his hand above each item for a moment, Casper successfully identified them all. Over time, Casper's diet also broadened as he learned to first keep down and then eventually appreciate a much wider variety of food beyond the bread and water he'd become accustomed to. Within only a few months of moving into Dalmer's house, he grew a further two inches. And soon, as Casper's ability to communicate continued to improve, so too did his powers of reasoning. The way he comprehended himself and the world began to change. Having had no qualms at all, about removing his clothes in front of people, Casper slowly began to feel a sense of shame at being naked, and where once he'd looked at a statue of Jesus Christ nailed to the cross in a local church and demanded that somebody free the tortured man, he eventually came to understand the difference between animate and inanimate objects. Those white wooden toy horses that he once so lovingly fed and watered, were soon abandoned as childish and boring. And that stranger's face, he'd so often seen in the mirror, he slowly began to understand, was his own. And as his sense of self and the world began to change, so too did his understanding of the past and his place within it. Or more specifically, his understanding of the countless years he spent locked up in the cage, as he called it. For hours at a time, he would try to think back 
to how he felt before, puzzled as to how on earth it hadn't even occurred to him that there was an entire world beyond the four dark walls that surrounded him. At other times, the assault on his senses from all the new sounds, smells and colours he had to contend with and the speed at which his mind was expanding left him feeling overwhelmed. On occasion, he even longed to be back in the pitch-black silence of his prison, often telling people how much more pleasurable it was for him to look at a blank white wall than to have to endure the torturous, bucolic scenes of the country outside his bedroom window. In time, however, Caspar learned to make peace with his new surroundings and even began to take pleasure in the beauty of the outside world. His language skills had developed so much that he started work on an autobiography. He was, by all accounts, the happiest he had ever been and especially fond of Professor Dalmer and his family and the charity they'd afforded him, telling them that he wanted to stay in Nuremberg until he'd learned everything that Dalmer had to teach him. One night, when the sky was especially clear, Dalmer led Caspar outside and showed him the many thousands of stars that glistened in the darkness above them. It was, said Caspar, the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen in the world. We often talk about how the advent of streaming has revolutionised the way we engage with audio and visual content, placing countless numbers of films, TV shows and music tracks at our fingertips. But did you know this has also been happening for books too? Described as the Netflix for books, Scribd is quite simply the largest digital library in the world and all of it accessible from your favourite device. With Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines and more. As a user myself, Scribd has been invaluable for me as a resource, giving me access to a huge range of sources that have helped inform many of the stories featured on Unexplained. Enjoy instant access to Scribd's entire library for less than the cost of a single book and discover must-read new work from celebrated authors like Roxane Gay, Charles Yu and more, premiering exclusively on Scribd. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to tryscribd.com slash unexplained for your free trial. That's T-R-Y-S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash unexplained to get 60 days of script for free. In late August, Casper told his guardian, Von Tuka, about a peculiar dream he'd had the night before. Such things were apparently an entirely new experience for the young boy, who claimed never to have had them before he came to stay in Professor Dalmer's home. In it, he found himself walking the halls of a strange grand building, with huge paintings of people in fancy-coloured clothes, hung up on the walls, looming over him. Then suddenly, he was lying in bed in a room he didn't recognise, when a woman appeared in the doorway, wearing a yellow hat, with thick, luxuriant feathers coming out of it followed by a man in black with a tall hat and a sword at his side and a blue ribbon pinned to his chest with a cross hanging down from it. A few weeks later, Von Tuka took Caspar to Vest Castle in the centre of Nuremberg 
as they approached the large French doors at the front and saw through into the grand hall beyond, Casper suddenly froze. Like my dream, he said, much to Von Tuka's confusion. It wasn't the same place he'd seen exactly, but yet something about it felt familiar. It was, he said, as if he'd once lived in a place just like it. Another time, Casper dreamt about a woman who sat crying at the end of his bed, calling him Gottfried over and over again. He believed she was his mother. With the dreams sounding so vivid, and Casper always being so insistent about them, Von Tuka began to wonder if they were in fact subconscious memories slowly coming to the surface. When Professor Dalmer heard about the experience at Vest Castle, he asked Casper if he could remember anything distinctive about the place he'd seen in his dream, a coat of arms perhaps that could identify the location. After explaining what that meant to the boy, Casper then took a pen and paper and drew a shield split into four quadrants. In one corner, he drew what looked like a lion. In another, he put what looked like a scepter, something he hadn't even seen before, while the last two were given to two swords crossed over and a simple cross. After an exhaustive search, however, Dalmer couldn't find anything like it anywhere. Even so, it was hard for Dalmer and the others who'd taken such an interest in the young boy not to be stirred by these uncanny experiences. They began to wonder if there might be some truth to the rumours that he had indeed once come from a family of considerable wealth. Over the next year, things continued apace under Dalmer's guidance as Casper continued to expand his mind while never quite losing his childhood innocence, nor what was perhaps his most profound characteristic, his inherent sense of injustice at the suffering of any living creature. A trip to the circus proved especially horrifying for Casper when it soon occurred to him that the performing monkeys he and everyone else were laughing at were in fact prisoners, just like he had been, forced to repeat their tricks over and over again, night after night, against their will. Realising his own part in their misery, he turned to Dalmer and begged him to be taken away. In time, he began to understand love too, in a way. One day, he was found sitting alone crying in his room, when Von Tuka asked him what the matter was, he replied through tears, why was it that he didn't have a mother or a brother or sister, and how it would be so beautiful if he did. Though there was nothing that Professor Dalmer could do for Casper in this regard, he was able to indulge Casper's love of horses by arranging for him to be taught how to ride. Strangely, Casper seemed to take to it, as though he had ridden horses his whole life. Things, by all accounts, were going well, it seemed. By the autumn of 1829, however, Dalmer began to notice a shift in Casper's attitude, in which he seemed increasingly determined to do things on his own terms. 
He even began to skip some of the lessons that Dalma had arranged for him. On October 17th, Dalma scolded Casper for missing yet another lesson, although Casper denied doing any such thing. Later, Casper told Dalma that he felt unwell and was told to stay home in bed to recuperate. It was just after midday, as Dalma's sister Katerina was cleaning the house, when she spotted what looked like blood on the stairs, leading into the backyard. Looking closer, she noticed a bloody footprint too. Believing Casper had most likely suffered a nosebleed, but neglected to clean up after himself, Katerina went to his room to ask him about it. But Casper was nowhere to be found. Katerina eventually followed the trail of blood all the way to the outhouse at the back of the courtyard, where, much to her alarm, she found a large, thick puddle of it on the stone floor. Assuming that a cat had probably just given birth there, Katerina cleaned it up and thought nothing else of it. By lunchtime, however, Casper was still nowhere to be found. When Professor Dalmer returned home from his mid-morning walk, he noticed Casper's coat and shirt hanging up by the side, something he did whenever he went to the outhouse. It was only then that they noticed the dark stain on the trapdoor that led to the cellar. Realising it was blood too, Katerina lifted the door and cried out at the sight of even more drops of blood on the steps leading into the darkness below. Shouting for a maid to bring a lamp, Katerina then made her way to the bottom, where in the far corner of the room, which was flooded ankle deep with water, she could just make out a pale-skinned Casper lying slumped against the wall. When they finally managed to haul his seemingly lifeless body into the kitchen, all gasped in horror at the sight of his blood-streaked shirt and the sickening gash on his forehead. Then slowly, much to their relief, he began to stir. The man, the man, he said weakly, with a look of abject terror on his face. After being put to bed, Casper spent the next 48 hours in a state of delirium, during which he intimated that the man who had once kept him prisoner had tried to murder him. Two days after the apparent attack, he was invited to give a statement to the police. As he explained it, after making a visit to the outhouse, he was just about to leave when he caught sight of a man creeping into the courtyard. Having a bad feeling about it, he waited for the man to pass through before sticking his head out to check if the coast was clear, when he looked up suddenly to find the man was standing right in front of him. The man, who he described as being broad-shouldered, was dressed all in black with shiny boots and lemon-coloured kidskin gloves, and a dark scarf wrapped around his face so he couldn't be seen. Then, shouting, You must die before you leave the city of Nuremberg, he raised his arm to reveal a huge bladed weapon like a meat cleaver. The next thing Casper remembered he was lying on the floor in a pool of blood. 
Having tried to get upstairs, he soon panicked that the man would come back to get him, so decided his best chance was to hide in the basement. Only when he'd finally managed to find a dry spot to lie on by the wall did he realise the mistake he'd made, worrying then that he would simply die down there alone before anybody found him anyway. And then he blacked out. Although Casper didn't see the man's face, he insisted that his voice was that of the man who had once kept him imprisoned for so long. After hearing Casper's testimony, Professor Daumer and von Feuerbach were in little doubt that the man had clearly come back to kill Casper, spurred on, perhaps, by the worry that he might one day be brought to justice for his heinous crimes. However, despite the best efforts of the city's chief of police, Lieutenant Joseph Hickel, no evidence to support Casper's story was ever found, and before long, people were beginning to ask more questions about the mysterious boy, whose life seemed so comfortable now, compared to when he first appeared out of nowhere. Why had he been attacked in the middle of the day, for example? And why hadn't the killer made sure to finish him off, if that was his intention? Nonetheless, the city agreed to give Casper police protection for the foreseeable future, with two officers ordered to chaperone his every move. A few weeks later, Casper was once more ordered to stay in his room by Professor Dalmer, after the pair had argued again over Casper's increasing tendency to skip his lessons. An hour or so later, a shot was heard coming from his bedroom, followed by the sound of something heavy hitting the floor. When his police guard rushed in to investigate, they found a bloodied Casper on the floor, alongside a pistol. Although the boy claimed he'd grabbed the gun accidentally, which was hanging on the wall, when he fell reaching for a book, the officers were not so sure, with one even reporting it as an attempted suicide. The continuing changes in Casper's personality led Dalmer to write that his nature has lost much of its original purity and that a highly regrettable tendency to untruthfulness and dissimulation had manifested itself. Things only became more difficult for Casper when he was forced to leave Dalmer's home in January 1830 as Dalmer struggled with an ongoing illness. After four months spent living with a local businessman who also found Casper to be infuriatingly untrustworthy, he was eventually taken in by his guardian, von Tuka, in May of 1830. It was around this time that another rumour began to emerge when a priest from Pest in the Kingdom of Hungary accused two associates of a Countess Matheny of being involved in Casper's imprisonment. In response, von Tuka quizzed Casper with some Hungarian words. Incredibly, Casper claimed to recognise a significant number of them, including the Hungarian name Istan. So much so, he thought it might even be his own. At some point, with Casper's story now widely known throughout Europe, he began to arouse the interest of the English aristocrat and former Member of Parliament, 
Philip Henry Stanhope, the fourth Earl of Stanhope. Also convinced that the boy was descended from nobility, Stanhope travelled to Nuremberg in May 1831 to pay him a visit. Stanhope's meeting with Caspar only served to heighten his fascination, after which he resolved to adopt the boy for himself and take him back to his family estate in Chevening in the southeast of England. After negotiating with the city, Stanhope donated the princely sum of 500 golden for the boy's continued upkeep until he could return to take care of him himself. Then, a few months later, something else came to light. In October 1831, Hungarian noble Ladislaus von Mere was passing through Nuremberg when he requested a meeting with Kaspar. After then trying out a number of Hungarian phrases on the boy, to which he didn't respond, von Mere then said the phrase, Istan goes to Zalakutz, at the sound of which Kaspar's eyes widened and he became suddenly animated. Yes, said Kaspar with great excitement. That's it. Salakutz was the castle home of the Countess Matheny. Then von Mere asked Kaspar if he recognised the name Bartakovich, to which his eyes grew wide once more. That is my mother's name, he cried out triumphantly. This, as it turned out, was also Countess Matheny's maiden name. When the Earl of Stanhope took formal custody of Casper the following month, he contacted Lieutenant Hickel, the city's chief of police, and instructed him to look into Casper's extraordinary claim immediately. In the meantime, with concern growing that Casper's life may be in danger if his true identity were discovered, Stanhope made arrangements to have him moved to the town of Ansbach, 50 miles from Nuremberg, and placed in the company of 32-year-old teacher, Dr. Johann George Mayer. In January 1832, Stanhope then returned to England, promising Casper that he would be brought to Chevening House at the first opportunity. But Stanhope would never see Casper again. The following month, Lieutenant Hickel travelled to Hungary, where he visited the castle of Salakutz and the Countess Matheny herself. However, he found nothing to suggest that Caspar's story was even remotely true, with the initial rumours of her involvement blamed on the bitterness of a former employee. It was said he had simply started it in revenge for having been sacked from his job as a tutor to the Countess's children. Despite this trail going cold, however, more rumours began to crop up, such as that Caspar was in fact the prince and heir to Grand Duke Carl Louis Frederick of Baden and Stephanie de la Pagerie, the adopted daughter of Napoleon Bonaparte. Their son, they were led to believe, had died at birth in 1812, only for some to claim he had in fact been stolen as part of a plot conceived by Carl's stepmother, Louise von Hochberg, to ensure her own children would inherit his title. Meanwhile in Ansbach, with all the talk of Caspar's supposed noble lineage, his enthusiasm for study 
had diminished even further, much to the exasperation of his new teacher, Dr. Mayer. With none of the affection for his new pupil that Professor Dalmer had, Dr. Mayer grew quickly frustrated with what he saw as Casper's increasingly duplicitous behaviour. With nowhere else to go, however, Casper had little choice but to endure Mayer's bitterness as he awaited the return of the Earl of Stanhope. Later that year, Anselm Ritter von Feuerbach published a full account of Casper's story, which he followed up in January 1833 with a pamphlet speculating that Casper could well be the mythical Prince of Baden, whose life would be seriously endangered should the truth ever be discovered. Only a few months later, von Feuerbach fell gravely ill before dying of an apparent stroke on May 28th, leading some to speculate that he had in fact been poisoned. This holiday season, I want to give a gift to my loved ones that makes them feel special and unique. That's why I'm giving everyone I care about StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. A thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. Every week, StoryWorth emails your loved ones a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of possible options, like... If you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your loved one's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. With StoryWorth, I'm giving those I love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com unexplained and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash unexplained to save $10 on your first purchase. In December 1893, with the Earl of Stanhope travelling through Germany on his way to meet with Casper, Casper and Dr. Mayer fell out once again over Casper's apparent deceitfulness. A few days later, Mayer and his wife were relaxing together in their home in Ansbach, when a breathless Casper stumbled into the room, clutching his chest. I've been stabbed, he said, as he grabbed Mayer's arm and pointed toward the door. Shocked at the sight of blood under Casper's shirt, Mayer followed Casper out into the snow as he led him to where he claimed it had happened. There, said Casper a short time later, pointing toward the back of a small courtyard garden, not far from the mayor's home. Man had knife, gave bag, stabbed, ran as hard as could. Bag still there, he said, still clutching at his chest. Realising that Casper was beginning to lose his strength, Mayer then helped him back to the house and into bed and called for a doctor. When the doctor arrived, he quickly found a small puncture wound just on the left side of Casper's breast that was still bleeding a little. Thinking it little more than a superficial wound, he suggested the boy be given a few days to rest, after which he would be fine. A police officer was dispatched to the garden, where, just as Casper had tried to explain, he found a small silk bag left out in the snow, inside which was a note 
tightly folded into a small triangle. Unfolding it, the police officer discovered a message written in pencil, back to front in mirror writing. Back at Dr. Mayer's home, Mayer took the note and held it in front of a mirror. To be delivered, it read, Hauser will be able to tell you exactly how I look and from whence I came. To save Hauser the trouble, I will myself tell you where I come from. I come from the Bavarian frontier on the river. I will even give my name as well. The writer then signed off with the initials M-L-O with an umlaut. A few days later, with Casper's condition showing little sign of improvement, the police came to interview him about what exactly had taken place. As Casper went on to explain, on the morning of the attack, he was approached by a man who claimed to have a message for him from the head gardener of the courtyard park, requesting strangely that Casper meet with him at 3.30pm that afternoon to look at some specimens of clay that had been taken from the garden's artesian well. When Casper arrived, however, there was nobody there. After moving further into the garden, he saw a man he didn't recognise, dressed in a dark cloak and black hat, coming quickly towards him. Saying suddenly, I give you this, the man gave Casper the silk bag before quickly stabbing him under the arm. Casper's instant reaction, he said, was to drop the bag and run straight home. Later that evening, Casper began behaving strangely, moving his hands feverishly up and down his sheets, saying, I have much to write today, all in pencil, I must write, he said. Sensing a turn for the worse, Mayer then called for the doctor and the local pastor to come immediately before asking Casper if he had anything to say to him, demanding that he look him full in the face when he said it. But Casper could only look back with confusion, before spouting a series of seemingly random statements. Sin, destruction, cannot get free, the monster stronger than I. Why should I feel anger or rancor? No one ever did me wrong. And then finally, tired, very tired, a long journey to take. As the last word left his mouth, a by then deathly pale Casper turned his face to the wall and died. Casper Hauser's post-mortem revealed that although the puncture wound was small, It had in fact penetrated all the way to his heart, causing him to eventually bleed internally to death. Although efforts were made to trace the apparent culprit, police quickly began to suspect, owing largely to Dr. Mayer's character assessment, that Casper had in fact inflicted the wound on himself. Despite extensive interviews with the local community, no one saw a man matching the description given by Casper in the vicinity on the day of the supposed attack. The police also thought it strange that despite Casper telling people that the man had thrust a bag into his hands, 
he seemed to have no interest in what was actually in it. As for the note that was found, one spelling mistake and grammatical error were found, reminiscent of similar mistakes that Casper often made himself. The way it had been folded into a triangle was also something that he was fond of doing, while the paper was found to match paper that was later found in a bin in Casper's bedroom. And despite the Earl of Stanhope offering up to 10,000 golden for any information leading to the capture of the culprit, nobody came forward to claim it. In September 1834, the investigation into Caspar Hauser's apparent murder came to an end, with an inquest concluding that no murder had been committed. Few, however, believed that Caspar intended to kill himself, suspecting rather that he tried to fake an attack, only to end up stabbing himself a little deeper than he'd meant to. Professor Dalmer, however, continued to stand by his former pupil, and even accused the Earl of Stanhope of being involved in his assassination, and possibly even the death of Anselm Ritter von Feuerbach. Over time, however, as news of the inquest result spread throughout the German Confederation, most came to doubt Caspar's entire story, believing he'd simply made it all up to find himself a better life. And so things remained for the next 100 years, until something new came to light. In 1919, novelist Clara Hoffer and her husband moved into a castle by the name of Schloss Pilsack, located about 40 kilometres southeast of Nuremberg. It wasn't until 1924, however, that they began a much-needed renovation of the property, during which a strange dungeon-like room was discovered, hidden away on a mezzanine level of the building. Roughly six feet by four and five feet high, with a tiny blocked up window at one end and its floor of hard pressed dirt, it was almost identical to the room in which Casper claimed he'd been imprisoned for most of his life. It was another 60 years later when workers carrying out reconstruction work on a basement staircase at the property discovered something peculiar buried in the earth underneath it. It was only when they dug it up and wiped it clean, however, that they realised what it was. A large, white, wooden toy horse, just like the one Casper said he used to play with in the cage. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. 
Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give love and logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.